Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Greg Butler, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Eversource Energy, New England's largest energy delivery company. Greg has spent nearly two decades at Eversource and 30 years in the utility sector, having served in leadership roles at New England Electric System and Niagara Mohawk Power Corporation. Before all that, however, Greg was a staffer. Originally from New York State, after college, he worked for the Republican Conference in the New York State Assembly and later was asked to serve as a senior attorney in the United States Department of Justice during the administration of President George H.W. Bush. Since moving to Connecticut in the late 90s, Greg has become deeply engaged in his community. He has too many volunteer commitments to mention them all, but just a smattering includes the Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network, the Mark Twain House and Museum, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and the Connecticut Fiscal Stability and Economic Growth Commission. As a matter of fact, he holds the unique position of being a citizen who has been asked to serve on the transition teams of three different candidates for governor, one Republican and two Democrats. You'll hear us talk about that. I really enjoyed my conversation with Greg, and I hope you do too. We recorded this episode on Friday, September 8th. Greg Butler, welcome to Staffer. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you this morning. As you may know, I like to start these interviews by asking people where they grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us about that? <laughs> sure. Sure. I, I was I was very fortunate. I had terrific parents. I grew up uh, outside of Syracuse, New York, in a little town called Jasenovia. I know about it. Twenty minutes. Yeah. Do you? How do you, how do you know it? I'm from outside New York. I'm from outside of Binghamton, New York. Yeah. Yeah. So I know Jasenovia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, yeah, beautiful little town on a lake. Um, you know, uh, first first kid in my family, first person I extended family to go to college. So my dad was a butcher and a janitor, and my mom was. Um, uh, housewife and then a paraprofessional in the uh, in the library when uh, I was in high school. So uh, you know, grew up there. Um, met my uh, met my wife there, the mother of my children there. We uh, we kind of grew up together and and uh, went off to Stony Brook at uh, on Long Island. So SUNY, you know, I thought about SUNY Binghamton, but ended up in SUNY Stony Brook because it was the farthest away from Casanova, <laughs> but still in New York. Right. Yes. So how did you meet politics? How did you get into it? Yeah, so it was really, um, my mother tells me that I was fascinated by listening to, to President Kennedy's speeches when I was very little. And so I would have been two or three years old at the time. And I vividly remember the assassination in 1963. In fact, I was playing outdoors with one of my, my friends, and there was this TV show that was popular at the time called Combat with Vic Morrow. And it was this World War II kind of 30-minute uh, series. And so I got on the Vic Morrow combat helmet and my Thompson submachine gun, and we were playing soldier in my backyard. And my mother comes out and tells me that someone has shot the president. So this little kid and I decide we're going to wander around the neighborhood and look for the guy who shot the president. Mm. So I, I've always had this fascination early on with Kennedy. And then uh, not too long after, somewhat precociously, read A Thousand Days and Schlesinger, which, you know, is a huge tome. And I'm probably 10 years old when I read it. And I just got hooked. I love politics. I love the, the idea of 
using something to make the world and your country better. I learned, you know, through reading all these biographies and and presidential and history and historical biographies, just um, the the how the government works and 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 the ins and the outs, the you know, the good and the bad. You know, the 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 they're great stories of human leadership and people and trouble and dynamics and all that. You know, so fell in love with an early stage. And uh, when I graduated from college, I um, I went down to Washington, D.C., didn't know a soul. Uh, El D'Amato had just been elected uh, to the U.S. Senate. I went to his door every morning at like 8 o'clock with my resume in my hand and, you know, begged him for a job. And finally, he, he, um, he took pity on me, brought me into his <laughs> office, sat me down with his chief of staff and said, find this kid a job. And so I, I got a job with a public interest <laughs> lobby, um, probably a little more conservative than 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 you are, uh, part of the little Reagan revolution, uh, you know, kind of the heritage uh, foundation type of, of folks. And I got my first taste of real politics. You know, they sent me off on working on campaigns. I I worked on various legislative matters and so forth. I, I was really, I had this boss who was, you know, one of these people who just throws you into the deep end of the pool. So he, he comes into my office one day. I Now, I'm 24 years old. He says, walks in, he goes, you have a meeting at the White House at noon. Oh, my God. And, and I'm like, with who? He said, <laughs> well, there's a bunch of people in the president. <laughs> what? <laughs> and so, you know, th- this was my exposure. I mean, he was. He, I just got thrown in here. And, uh, you know, it was some uh, national, uh, it was about the nuclear freeze, actually. And, you know, I'm I'm thrown into the deep end of the pool. And so very early on, I'm doing all these kind of things, going all these kind of places, meeting all these kind of people. And it was just terrific. But uh-huh. I, I kind of I figured out at some point that a lot of the people making the decisions were lawyers. And so I thought, well, I'll go to law school with no intention of being a lawyer, but with the intention of going back to Washington afterwards and kind of, you know, moving up the food chain. And so my wife and I went to Hong Kong, ran a refugee camp overseas, and then I enrolled in law school. We found out the first day that my wife was pregnant with our first child, and so I need a job. And so through um, a family friend, uh, or a member of the family, actually, I was able to, um, to get a job with the state legislature uh, while I was in law school. So I would go to law okay. school for part of the day and go to the legislature for part of the day, and did that all through law school, came with, out. With a newborn. Yeah, with a newborn. Oh, with a newborn, boy. yeah. In fact, she was born during exams. <laughs> so honest to God, I mean, it's like out of a sitcom. I'm trying to study for the contracts final while my wife is in labor. And so it's, it's like I'm reading the book, you know, and she goes into a contraction. I look up, it's like, oh, breathe, 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 offer acceptance, consideration, breathe, breathe. <laughs> You know, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was a, it was really, it was terrible. But, you know, went from there to working as minority counsel in, in the in Albany in the state legislature. And then from there, the Justice Department, working for this guy named Bill Barr. And, um, you know, then when Governor Clinton became President Clinton, there wasn't a lot of demand for my services at the Justice Department anymore. And I became a corporate lawyer. Yeah. All right, I want to I want to get back to that transition in a minute, but I, I want I also want to go back to that time when you're working for Senator D'Amato, and then afterwards um, outside Capitol Hill working on issues. 
but you're being thrown into the deep end. And yeah. sometimes that it, you know, you are meeting with people who you may feel are like deeply informed on something that you're not, who are sort of above your station, so to speak, in terms of experience and power within their organizations. As a young staffer, how did you navigate that? Yeah, well, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because I'll back up for a second. The way my dad taught me how to ride a bike was to build, he built this bike from junkyard parts, took me to the top of the hill and pushed me down the hill. And, and so almost in my DNA was the getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. And so, you know, I would learn as much about the subject as I could before I would go on, obviously. And, you know, clearly I was never going to be as smart as the subject matter experts. But I found if I listened really hard and then, you know, really asked questions when I didn't understand something, uh, you know, I could really kind of come up with the learning curve. I, you know, there's a lot of people who try to be the smartest person in every room. And, um, and I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of really smart people. And I find that the people who are the smartest people in the room aren't the people doing all the talking. Mm. And so I tried to listen a lot. And, um, you know, I, I clearly made mistakes. I mean, listen, I, I, many times I got out in front of my headlights on things. I uh, had hubris when I shouldn't have and got myself slapped down. You know, a few times I, I took a leap and, and you got it. You take some risks. You say, well, I'll, I'll do that. And you have no idea how you're going to do it. You have no idea how you're going to do it. And you walk away and go, what the hell did I just agree to? But then you go off and you figure it out. That's yeah. the that's the getting to the top of the hill and getting pushed down the hill. You figure out how to ride the bike. Yeah. And so over time, you know, I kind of got to the point where I was comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, and that... Yeah, that that notion of of getting comfortable being uncomfortable is really important for staffers because the world is wide and whatever issue you are working on today or Congress or your agency is working on today, that may change. That's likely to change in six months. And there's a new set of, of issues, priorities, crises. And so you always have to be learning new topics and right. dealing with new public engagement and new colleagues. Yeah, and one thing I did learn pretty early on is don't bluff. You know, if you know something, yeah, talk about it. If you don't know something about it, and somebody asks you a question, say, I don't know, and say, but I'll find out. I'll get back to you, I'll find out, and I'll get back to you. You know, when you kind of bluff and you're wrong, man, you, you, can, you can cause a lot of problems and you, can get, you lose your credibility pretty quickly. That's right. It's hard to become a reliable staffer and a reliable uh, representative of your office if people can't trust, right, you to be candid. And I think, you know, one of the things that helped me was for, for better or for worse, I, I've had this ability to kind of intuit my boss. I can kind of learn his, his or her voice. And that was helpful when I would write speeches, for example. But it's helpful when, when your boss sends you into a meeting and you may only have a limited, um, you know, limited view of what's going on and a limited script and a limited uh, range of authority. But if you can, as the, as the situation changes, you can often intuit, well, here's what my boss would do. And if, and if, you're, if you're in sync with your boss, you know, you can maybe take a few more chances, step out a little bit channel your boss, if you will. And over time, you know, you get better and better at that. And then over time, what happens is, you know, I'm no longer, you know, Greg Butler working for Bill Barr. I'm Greg Butler. 
you know, I, I developed my own credibility, my own wisdom, my own um, cachet, if you will. And yeah. so, uh, you know, that it's important to kind of know your limitations, important to know your boss, and it's it, important to kind of build your own brand that way. Yep. So you'd spent time in, in the New York State legislature, and then you came down to Washington, worked at DOJ for a couple of yep. years. Yep. DOJ is a big place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a like all the federal agencies, these are large uh, bureaucracies and they take some figuring out. Is there anything you learned during that window of time that you have found applicable to working in a large corporation? Well, bureaucracies are bureaucracies. So, yeah, the bureaucracy of DOJ was very helpful in translating into a bureaucracy of a large company. But But the most important lesson I learned, and it really wasn't about bureaucracy. So working in the New York State Legislature, we were in the minority. So you know we were the loyal minority. We were the bomb throwers. You know we were the guys offering forty-seven amendments to everything that the Democrats wanted to do, and none of them would pass, obviously. And uh, and so our job was to uh, more often than not try to score political points or or put people on the record on things they didn't want to be put on the record. So if I wrote an amendment to a particular piece of legislation, it didn't have to work. It didn't have to be right. It didn't have to even be constitutional, right? Because I'm trying to I'm trying to do something different because it's never going to become law, right? So I was pretty yep. good at that. And then I go off to Washington, and uh, one of the things that I was responsible for early on was um, DOJ. At that point, INS worked for DNA. It was a sub, uh, subsidiary agency of the Department of Justice. And so, a few days before Christmas, I'm like the the the, the um, the newbie, the new kid on the block. And so I'm the last guy around at Christmas time. And a cable comes in for our approval that was going out to all the district directors of INS on the issue of family reunification. And so I read through this cable and I and I and it comes to this definition of a family. And so I read it and I wrote in the margin, add dependent parent, okay, butler, send it off to all the district directors. Meaning, I'm telling them to amend the cable to include in the definition uh, dependent parent. So I go off to Christmas. I'm sitting in the, the living room with my my wife and and two two young daughters in my mom and dad's living room, and the phone rings. My mother answers the phone and she says it's an FBI agent on the phone for you. <laughs> so I I go and I answer the phone and and it's like you know, Mr. Butler, this is this is Special Agent Pablo of the FBI, manning the Justice Department command center this morning. Please hold for the commissioner of INS. Now, the commissioner of INS was like second cousins with George Bush. And they were hunting buddies and everything else. So I answered the phone, and, and I, I won't say exactly what he said, but you can kind of intuit and guess. It was a lot of a lot of asterisks and exclamation points and, you know, expletive, deleted, and all sorts. But the bottom line is, who the heck do you think you are? You know, who are you and why did you change this table? And when I tried to explain to him that, you know, while under international law, the definition of a parent or definition of family included dependent parent, he says, we already debated that in Congress. We, they didn't want to do that. So you can't just change the law. And so the lesson I learned, and I came back, I was terrified. You know, I thought I was going to lose my job and everything else. I've been on the job for like a month at this point. And, um, but the lesson I learned was when you're in an organization where you make decisions, you literally make decisions, you better be right. You can't wing it. You can't just say, well, this would be a good idea. You got to know what you're doing. 
and you got to be right. And so when you're an executive branch agency in this particular case, where the stroke of a pen actually creates law that people have to follow, you better know what you're doing when you when you write that that thing in the margin. Yeah. So that was a really powerful lesson to me at a fairly young age in my career. Well, and I think uh, it's something that staffers who go from uh, legislatures to executive branches, we all learn at some point. I mean, there's a reason why these bureaucracies have enormous amount of expertise in them. Right. I mean, people who've worked there for decades and know, you know, every tiny little bit of, of existing right. law and the history, you really rely on those folks. But when you're new, A, you're not aware of the pitfalls and you don't know how to access those. Right. Folks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Uh, that is a that is a terrifying call to get on Christmas morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> You know, I came back, I'm I was sure. waiting in the street, you know, I'm shaking, you know. My wife said, what's wrong? I said, I think I'm going to get fired. <laughs> like, Merry <laughs> Christmas. You know? Yeah, right. Every Christmas is better than that one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk to me about uh, when you left the Department of uh, Justice and, and then you transitioned into the private sector and, and how that happened. Well, as I said, uh, President Clinton uh, took office and, you know, as usual, you, you know, the uh, – the political folks leave and the new cadre of, of political folks come in. And so it was, you know, it was no surprise to me that um, that I was going to need to be looking for another job. Um, ironically, I already had my job in the second Bush administration. It was already lined up, and I knew I was going to leave justice and go to the State Department, and that was all teed up. And so I was, like, very excited about that, but then didn't really work out. So uh, I, uh, I, I, I knew that... that uh, that Governor Clinton was going to win as we got down near the, the final stretch. And uh, so rather than go to any of the parties or anything else, I just sat in my uh, bedroom with the door closed with a six pack of beer and watched the returns and kind of, you know, cried my beer literally. And, uh, and but I, I was very fortunate and as everybody scrambles around at the end of an administration to try to find a job. Uh, one of my mentors was the general counsel of a company called Niagara Mohawk, which was a you know, if you're Binghamton, you would know who they are. They're the large, at the time, they were one of the large uh, electric and natural gas companies. And they had um, just gone through a review and determined that they needed more lawyers. And they actually needed some lawyers who would be resident in D.C. And so he offered me the job. And um, I, I, you know, it was a great landing pad. I, I walked into his office the first day full of hubris. So this is a guy I'd known for years. Had given out and gave this whole outline of the things that the company ought to be doing and so forth. And he puts his hand up and he says, I know you know how to do politics. What we have to figure out is if you can be a lawyer. And so he handed me a, a piece of paper with a name and a telephone number written on it. And it was a guy in Albany who was um, responsible for organizing and then litigating the company's rate cases. And he said, You're going to go to Albany tomorrow. And you're going to meet with this guy, and you're going to second chair the the rate case this year. And next year, you're going to first chair the rate case. Wow! And so he did me this great. Sir, I mean, I would get throw me into the deep end of the pool. I I mean, I knew what a rate case was, but I knew nothing about how these things are put together or what the burden of proof is or you know how how it comes about. I I mean, I knew nothing. And um, so I got thrown into the deep end of the pool, and it was a great service to me because. There's not a better way to learn about how a electric and gas utility is organized and how they do business than to do the, the rate case. That's, that's kind of the sausage machine. 
And yeah. you know, you learn everything from from the HR stuff to the environmental stuff to the you know vegetation management to the power plants to the wires. I mean, it, you got to you got to learn the whole business. So it was a great service for me. But in addition to that, I did I did some of the government, the DC-based government affairs for the company, and did some environmental litigation as well. And then after a few years, I got recruited to go to another company. In this case, as a uh, officer running the uh, Washington office for this company, and a couple of years later was recruited to come to what is now Northeast Utilities to run the government affairs practice for the entire company. And they were going through a large transition because of some problems they had with uh, their nuclear power plants. They're basically eliminating most of the senior management and bringing in a new management team. And I was part of that that uh, sweep out and sweep in, if you will, and uh, got a new boss who was a great guy who loved who loved public policy, loved politics, understood that um, that utilities being heavily regulated industries, that politics and policymakers are really important. And uh, one day walked into my office, um, maybe a year or so after I got there, and said, you're the new general counsel. And so <laughs> I've had that job for the last 25 years, and it's, uh, you know, it's been a great run. Okay, so you went in a very short period of time to being in politics and not being a lawyer to getting experience with the law for, with the law inside a corporation to being the company's general counsel right what was that like <laughs> well when it happened i was probably the least qualified guy in america for the job and uh and you know i i don't rattle easily but i um i'm not embarrassed to tell you that every morning for about 6 months I had to pull the car over on my way to work, and I'd throw up. Oh my and, god! Because I I was so far over my head. I mean, I I didn't I didn't know the lexicon, let alone you know how to do this stuff. And I was fortunate that I had um, a lot of really good uh, people working for me, who basically trained me in how to be a corporate lawyer. I mean, I was a pretty good regulatory lawyer. I was a pretty good environmental lawyer. I was a pretty good policy lawyer, but you know. Getting into the, the nitty gritty of corporate law and and you know broader litigation and labor and employment and and you know on and on and on and on and then you know we started doing um, you know mergers and acquisitions and and so forth so you know I I was so far over my head but I had a boss who had faith in me um, I you know over time I had I had been learning how to you know when you're in politics and you've got a lot of people coming at you you quickly learn you know, I can rely on this person. This guy's smart, knows what he's talking about. This guy's a BS artist. You know, this person over here is just trying to push their own agenda. So you, you learn your BS detector gets pretty good if you're any good at this stuff. And so I was able pretty quickly to learn, here are the people on my team I can count on who really know their stuff and I can learn from them. Here are the people that, you know, want to see me fail, you know, because I'm kind of the mm -hmm. outsider. Yeah. Here's, here's the people who are just there, you know, because of the job. So, you know, you kind of quickly size it up and, and, you know, like everything else I've ever done, I just like dove in and, you know, paddled really hard until I, until I could actually swim. Oh my God. So when, you know, if a young person comes to you and it says, look, I've got this opportunity, I think if I go for it, it will, if I can grab it at all, it will be by my fingernails only. Um, and I'm not sure. Like I might flop. Yeah, you might. What advice do you give them? You, you take it. I mean, it, it, there's a there's a kind of a step backwards. 
first. And the, and the question is, um, and this is kind of weird, and you know, not many people do this, and but at a pretty young age in my career, I um, I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I kind of knew where I wanted to retire at. And, um, and so I did what, what we would call today, I didn't know at the time, but today we'd call it a gap analysis. I kind of looked at people like, you know, like where I wanted to be and looked at where I am and said, what do I have to do to get there? And, and that's proven to be a really good screening tool for me over the years. So, um, you know, let's make a hypothetical. You say, I want to be an astronaut. So you do this gap analysis and you realize every astronaut knows how to fly an airplane. Well, I better go fly, learn how to fly an airplane. doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're going to be an astronaut, but it means when that opportunity comes, they don't look at your form and say, oh, he doesn't know how to fly a plane, so you just get thrown out. So if, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got this opportunity, I might flop, but I might be able to hang on by the, the skin of my fingernail. I'd say, well, where will that position take you? What do you want to do with your life? And will it help you get to where you want to be? And by if that's the case, then by all means, you take it and you, and you work your backside off so that you, you hang on I and you don't that. flop. If it isn't going to help you get to where you want to go, as attractive as it might be, as lucrative as it might be, sexy, fun, you know, you say, let this cup pass because it's a derailleur. You know, it, it, it's going to be really fun for a while, but then in five years, you're going to wake up and go, I still want to be an astronaut, but I've screwed up. I'm on the wrong path now. I'm yeah. over to be a, you know, Samaritan or something, you know? Yeah, right. So, so you know, in a long career like I've had, um, there have been many moments along the way where someone comes along and says, hey, we'd love you to do this, or you think about doing that, or how about joining our team to do this thing? And, and so because I've had a reasonably clear grasp of what I wanted to do with myself um, and what was important to me, I was able to kind of screen those things and say, oh, that's a great opportunity. It does help me take a step towards where I want to be. Or this would be a lot of fun and a lot of money, but it's going to derail me. Mm-hmm. You know, something that you mentioned at the very beginning about your, your diving into political biographies is impact. And, you know, tied in with what you were just saying, I mean, you also, you did a service trip, um, a, a mission overseas. Sort of impact is something that has been a part of your life, sort of a, a thread line. Uh, it continues to be with service to many different nonprofit organizations. Um, but also in there is political aspiration. That you have, you've given that a lot of thought over time and many people have looked at you as a potential candidate, how do you um, assess, you know, yeah. those opportunities, those moments, and whether that's the the right time or the right fit for you? Yeah, well, it, it, it all goes back to that that question we were just talking about a moment ago, which is, where do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, for me, there was always two two competing things. One was, you know, the professional side. And, and that did include politics. And, you know, I will, you know, I'm not particularly embarrassed to tell you that, you know, if you ask me at 30 years old, what do you want to be? I'd tell you I want to be president. And um, uh, and I set about, you know, trying to build a career that would get me into the, the zip code of being able to do that, knowing that, you know, that's a one in a bazillion chance. But if, you know, if I do all the right things, I, I may end up as a governor or congressman or, you know, whatever. 
Right. You were and, flying and, an airplane. Like, right. That's what I'm I'm flying an airplane. Love it. And, yeah. and, and, and the reality is, you know, I have gotten into the zip codes for, for that, as, you, as you've mentioned. But there was always a, a, a higher calling, if you will, and that was my family. And, um, and, I, and when I was working in the legislature, I was also a Republican chairman of a county, which is how we do things in New York. And I was going to run for the state legislature. And, you know, the path was, was essentially cleared out for me. It was going to be a pretty easy run in a very overwhelmingly Republican county. And um, one morning, I'm having breakfast with a uh, member of the General Assembly, who's also named Butler, happened to be a Democrat from the Buffalo area. We had become friends because we share a common last name. And... Um, and he says, I hear you're going to run for, for Doc C. Doc, uh, Jack McCann was the, the state rep at the time. And I said, yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to do this. And he said, well, he lays out this whole scenario. And he says, and you know what? You're going to be president or you're going to be governor by the time you're 40, but you shouldn't do it. And I said, well, Dennis, if I'm governor at 40, I'm going to be president at 50. So why shouldn't I do this? <laughs> and he said, well, you've got two little kids at home. He said, I've been in the General Assembly for 28 years. I missed every back-to-school night. I missed every Little League game. And my kids are growing up, and I barely know them. Ironically, that same day, I get back to my office in Albany. And this is a kind of near the end of a session, and we've been in for like 10 straight days. My family's living in Casanova, so it's about two and a half hours away. So I haven't been home in almost two weeks. My then four-year-old daughter calls me, and, and when I answer the phone, she says, Daddy, are you ever coming home? Mm. And so that night, laying in the um, laying in my hotel room, looking at the ceiling at like 2 o'clock in the morning, I thought, I can't do this. I, I can't follow this path to, um, regardless of how successful it might have been, because it, it would jeopardize my family, my, the, the well-being of my family. Now, not everybody comes to that conclusion, and many people can have good, healthy families and be in public service and that sort of thing. But for me, it wasn't the right combination. And so I literally went back, told my boss, the minority leader at the time, I'm not running. Um, I called up Bill Barr, who was at the just who was at that point the deputy attorney general who I had known from earlier days in Washington, and asked him for a job at the Justice Department and kind of made that transition. Wow. Because it was really more important to me to be daddy than it was to be governor. You know, for for people who are in politics, you know, one way to hear that is sort of a gutting story. But the the more important interpretation is how beautiful that story is. Well, but it's a it's 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 a individual story, um, and it's it's my story. It, 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 Somebody else, my, my son-in-law right now is running for mayor of Hartford. And, um, you know, the primary is next Tuesday. And, you know, he's got a reasonable chance of pulling this off. And uh, and if he does win the primary, he's almost certainly going to win the general election because there's really no Republican um, uh, opponents in, in the city of Hartford. Um, he's got five little kids. And so, you know, he and my daughter have, have figured out how to manage their family and let him do this important work. So different different people can come to different conclusions. For me, that was the right answer. For somebody else, they, they may follow a different path and their life will be just wonderful. 
But for me, I knew that was the path that I had to follow. Yeah. Well, um, you have remained uh, very, very politically connected through all of your time, um, all of your professional life. That continues today. And something yeah, I want... Yeah, I'm married to a politician. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Former member of the Connecticut yeah. uh, Senate. Yeah, she, yes. was, she was, she was the, uh, the, the first and only Republican uh, woman leader in the House of Representatives. Yes. So something that I want to share with our listeners that I think is, is really important is, you know, uh, in 2010... Uh, there was a very close race for governor of Connecticut. There, it was mm -hmm. Democrat uh, Dan Malloy versus Republican Tom Foley. And it was yeah. so close that in the days afterwards, it wasn't immediately <laughs> clear who won. And during that period of time, both candidates named you to their transition teams. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I should note, in 2018, Democrat Ned Lamont also named yeah. you to his transition team. So yeah. my, my question for you, I mean, it... it, it People can have really successful careers in politics and not be well-respected by both parties. Yeah. So my question for you is, what do you do and, and what do you avoid doing to retain that credibility and warmth for people in both parties? Well, I, I guess I start with looking at people as human beings. Um, you know, I had gotten to know Dan Malloy when he was mayor of, of Stanford, and, you know, we had a pretty decent relationship. Um, your former partner, Roy Ocagrosio, was a friend. Um, uh, Tim Bannon, who was the chief of staff, uh, coming into for uh, Governor Malloy, was a, was a very good friend. So, you know, I just, you know, not that there's any design behind 